happening, everybody? And welcome to another mind-expanding, anxiety-reducing episode of Jazztopia. I'm your host, Bobby Spellman, coming at you from sunny, scenic Bushwick, Brooklyn, at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic lockdown experience. I uh, hope everybody's doing well out there. How you doing? How you doing out there, everybody? Doing all right? All right, well, that was a test. Obviously, this is a pre-recorded recording, so if you answered that, you are not doing all right. Call your friends. Get some help. All right? Uh, I know it's been a lot. We've been deep in this. It's been months of of having to stay at home and avoid human contact, the sort of normal human contact that we've experienced for the first 250,000 years of human existence. And uh, we're not able to go out and see live music, and we're not able to socialize, go to bars, or go to see... Uh, you know, entertainment of any kind. So it's been a little tricky. It's been a little tricky for everybody. Uh, but it looks like it looks like we're on the we're on the mend here. It looks like we're on the we're going in the right direction. We're still a little ways from a vaccine or any kind of a uh, obvious solution. But doesn't it feel like at least we can go outside? We can go out to the park, try to stay away from old people and uh, and and immunocompromised folks. But uh, it feels like we're we're starting to come out of our shell a little bit. Business is starting to open back up. Uh, everybody's trying to stay safe and. Uh, do the right thing, but it looks like we're we're just we're just coming out of our shells here, just starting to get back to some kind of a normal experience. Uh, well, despite the fact that there's no live music these days, fortunately we have a lot of great recorded music coming out. Uh, the mm, saxophonist and composer Michael Thomas has a new album out last week uh, entitled Event Horizon, that features his quartet, including trumpeter Jason Palmer, among others. Uh, be sure to check that out on Michael's Bandcamp page. There's also a great album just came out on Sunnyside Records by Lucian Bon, John Sermon, and Matt Mineri called Transylvanian Folk Songs. And uh, Lucian Bon and the gang took the transcriptions from Bella Bartok's field recordings of Romanian folk songs and used them as... Uh, vehicles for improvisation, and it is a beautiful record. I got to sit down and check it out last night, and uh, really amazing stuff. They are all amazing players, and the way that they took these really beautiful melodies and uh, and really breathed new life into the whole thing is spectacular. Furthermore, that music is is uh, unconventional in certain ways that I think you'll get a, really get a kick out of hearing the different kind of tonalities and approaches that come from Transylvanian folk song. So check that out. You can find that on the Sunnyside Bandcamp page. A uh, really cool record. Uh, I'm very happy to announce that my album is coming out on Friday, May 22nd. If you're listening to this on the day it comes out, that's tomorrow. Uh, the name of the record is Revenge of the Cool. And it features my nonette that I've been operating since my time at New England Conservatory. The personnel has changed over the years, of course. Uh, but I've been writing this music for a long time. I, I really started to dig into the the orchestration and approaches that Gil Evans and Jerry Mulligan and uh, John Carisi and John Lewis and everybody else took on The Birth of the Cool back when I was an undergrad. And I put this band together at the end of my, my uh, time at New England Conservatory. And uh, I've been working on this music for a long time, and I'm really happy to finally get it out there. Uh, it's eight brand-new tracks They've been around for a little while, but they're they're new to the uh, they're new to you. You haven't heard them. Uh, all original music, featuring a really great band. I'm really proud of these guys. Uh, they wanted to come in and do this stuff. Proud that they uh, they wanted to play my music and bring it to life, and it really came out great. Uh, the, the musicians involved 
including myself, uh, of course, on trumpet and slide trumpet, uh, David Leon on alto saxophone, also a little cameo from my wife, Emily Pecoraro, on alto saxophone on the first track. Uh, we have Kyra Sims playing some really beautiful French horn parts. French horn has been uh, really a, a, an important part of the important color of this organization. And uh, of course, it's not a standard jazz instrument, but uh, it's been really fun to write for. It's, a, it's something that seems I- impossible to do the band without because of the kind of remarkable color of the, of the horn. And both uh, Kyra Sims and Justin Mullins play French horn on this. And they both really bring a lot of character to that instrument and to the color of the band. Now, Justin Mullins takes a great solo on there, so if you haven't heard a French horn solo, you got to pick up a record. Check it out. All right, we also have Tim Schneer on trombone, uh, Ben Stapp on tuba, Ben Schwendener on piano. Ben uh, was a guest on the show a couple weeks ago, episode five. You can check out our conversation on the Lydian chromatic concept. Uh, we also have Eli Wallace on piano, Andrew Schiller on bass, and Evan Hyde on drums. And it was a lot of fun to put together. I'm really happy to finally put it out. It's coming out on Sunnyside Records. I'm really happy that uh, Francois and the gang at Sunnyside wanted to put it out. It's been a long time coming. So if you want to check it out, if you want to check out what I've been up to the last little, last little while, you can find it on the Sunnyside Bandcamp page. Uh, the Bobby Spellman Nonette, Revenge of the Cool. Well, we've got one more album has come out recently that I want to talk about, uh, and that is The Big Heart Machine has produced an album, has released an album this last week called Live at the Jazz Gallery. And my guest this week is the composer and leader for the Big Heart Machine, Brian Kroc. Uh, Brian's Brian's a guy on the scene, doing the work, in the trenches, playing saxophone and all of the woodwind instruments, playing Broadway shows and uh, various gigs of various kinds, and also leading his big band, Big Heart Machine. Uh, They've got two albums out now. The first album is... The eponymous Big Heart Machine uh, was uh, was was uh, produced by uh, Darcy James Argue and includes a lot of really amazing music. And this new record, Live at the Jazz Gallery, was is self-released now by Brian. Uh, it's an amazing album. Uh, that whole band, if you haven't gotten to check it out, if you haven't heard their music, is a is an amazing amalgamation of various uh, disparate styles. It's a, it's sort of a, it's a fairly standard big band uh, instrumentation with the augmentation of some synthesizers and vibraphone and uh, certainly the, I would say a very wide range of colors from the individuals in the band. Uh, Brian talks about how he really features the personalities of the people in the group and it's a very interesting organization because it, 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 covers both, uh, let's say, very composed music, but also everybody in the band seems to have a strong handle on free improvisation and on very unique tonal colors. So as a result, what comes out here is, uh, is, not, your, is not your dad's, it's not your grandfather's big band. You've got a, it's a, it's a combination of, of big band approaches, standard large ensemble jazz approaches with some, some metal, as well as a lot of free improvisation. So I think that you'll uh, you'll really love it. Go check it out. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. Be sure to buy it, all right? I mean, we want to buy these people's musics, all right? These are people that are working in the field right now to create new and exciting music for you. And uh, I know the tendency for everybody these days is to have sort of a uh, an instant gratification, everything for free approach. And when you look at Spotify, I understand the... Um, the appeal, given the fact that it is user-friendly and you have to, you know, either don't pay or there's a monthly thing or whatever. 
but it's a huge support to the musicians to buy their albums uh, because the difference between what you get from one purchase of an album and when you get from, I don't know, a million plays on Spotify is pretty substantial, and it's a big deal. It costs a lot of money and, and a ridiculous amount of effort to put these things out. So if you like the music and you want to support it, throw down 15 bucks or something like that. I think he's selling it for 10 but throw down some money and pay this guy, all right? Pay all these people. Because it's it's a little bit. It's only like uh you know it's like it's like one and a half coffees at Starbucks or something or a or a ham really really good ham sandwich to eat once. But if you're listening to music, it's the gift that keeps on giving. All right, it's important to support this music. Anyway, uh, I was happy that uh, Brian wanted to sit down with me and hang out. It's like an old school hang back from just like before we were all locked down, except in this instance, I'm running an interview show, so uh, I got him to talk a lot about his approach and his philosophies on the music and the musicians involved in the project, and uh, we had a lot of fun, and I think you will too. So without further ado, here he is, Brian Croft. Dude, actually, if you want to hear a funny story... Um, I just decided because of um, all of my gigs getting canceled and money being tight that I was going to do my own album art for my next two albums. Mm -hmm. So I, so I did the album art for big heart machine live at the jazz gallery Mm -hmm. and um, which I think looks cool. And I've been getting a lot of compliments like, like, wow. Yeah. So what happened was I downloaded Adobe, I don't even remember what the program is called. Adobe, it's not Adobe Draw, Adobe Fresco. Okay. For my iPad, opened it up and took my like <laughs> took my iPad pencil and was like, "All right, let's I clicked the first brush that I saw and then I just went roop and I was like, "Wow, that looks cool already." <laughs> and and I was just like, "You know what?" Like, I'm I'm not gonna overthink this. I think that looks cool, and I and I was laughing the whole day because I was like, I just did my album artwork, literally in 20 seconds, <laughs> and and it was the very first thing I ever did on Adobe Fresco. And I mean, but but then I, since then I did the my next records album art on Adobe Fresco, and I spent like days and days of getting really deep into it. It's just amazing how how. Um, how much the program, like, uh, I guess it's, it's probably, it's probably similar in so many ways to logic or Ableton. And I'm, I wonder how real artists feel about it because it makes it really hard to do something that looks bad, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And a real, a real artist would immediately like look at anything I did and be like, they obviously did that on fresco because it like it just gently guides you towards like what's definitely gonna work right you know? yeah yeah yeah. but you, if you can trick and the I, masses it's, you know good to go you know <laughs> yeah exactly well, is that the is that the is that what ended up being the album cover for um live at the jazz gallery yep that's mm-hmm. wild huh and i i knew it i knew it was a good idea because i just was laughing all day long i i like i literally just did that one thing and then I was like, that, that, why do anything more? And, and I'm also like getting into this phase of my life and my professional life where I'm just really trying 
to not to stop overthinking and just yeah. to start just doing. I think that um, uh, I mean, you and I don't know each other that well. We've only hung a couple times. And, sure, but um, I I think it's safe to say I'm like a little um, OCD, definitely a perfectionist, like in an unhealthy way. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that has prevented me from trying anything sure a lot up until like this year you know and yeah. and now i'm i'm realizing that one of the keys to getting better at anything is repeating the process and if you can't get yourself to do one like record or one instagram video or do if you can't do it once you'll never get good at it because you have to do it a hundred times right you know yeah and so it's, i'm, I'm it's tough go to go ahead. into that too because you you have to know uh, being a perfectionist you have to know when you start something or when you try something new that that it's going to suck for a minute like you have to just <laughs> get past that point but it's tough exactly. to look at your stuff and be like I know this is going to be good I just have to keep working at it and keep doing it and trying different things out but I think mm-hmm. that's a plague of the artist in general is the idea that especially people who are perfectionists like I, you know, it's it's easy to get caught up in the minutia and never release anything. I know I know a lot of people who are really brilliant musicians who continue to make stuff and who never put it out because it never reaches their own, you know, level or whatever whatever they're 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 trying to hear. And yet, there's so many people that would love to hear the music. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, I tell this story to everyone I can about um, one of my good friends, Ollie Hervonen, the guitar mm-hmm. player. Um, he basically bullied me into releasing music, um, when I first did, because uh, we, every time I would see him, he'd be like, when are you going to make a record? And I, and I would say, I'm not good enough yet. The music's not good enough yet. I want to, but, um, I want to wait until I'm good enough. And then one day he like, I'll never forget. He said to me, like, you're never going to feel like you're good enough. Yeah. So if you wait for that day, it's never going to come. Sure. And, um, and he's right because uh, I've released three records now and I, I'm, I still don't think that the music's good enough or that I'm good enough, but, <laughs> but I am proud of, of those releases, you know, I, I'm, and, and with each one, you get better and better at the process. So. For sure. Yeah. Well, congratulations on the new record. Sounds oh, great. Thanks, man. Appreciate yeah, it. Thank album. you. Thanks, man. Uh, now, let me ask you this. Uh, I think that the live record thing really lends itself well to jazz and improvised music because that's what you're getting in the audience is the spontaneity, you know, the spont- spontaneity of the of the moment and the experience in the moment. Uh, but it's a daunting task to do that because there's no, you don't have the same leeway you would in the studio to try to correct everything or to make it exactly perfect the way that you'd want to or whatever. But maybe that's part of the deal. What did you do to to prepare for? Um, you know, being able to just do this. Was it one night at the jazz gallery? Yeah, it was one night. We played two sets and we played the exact same set, both sets. Sure. Um, and then of course, every take came from the second set because (laughs) we'd all had a, had a glass of wine at intermission and like relaxed a little bit, I think, you know? Sure. Yeah, Um, yeah, Yeah. But yeah, you're so right. It, it, um, it's a different challenge and uh, I'm really glad that uh, I decided to do it because, um, well, at first I just really wanted, I love 
like live records in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really thought that as much as I liked, I love the, the first Big Heart Machine album, I thought it somehow was missing the actual energy of the band, you know? Okay, sure. And because we went so deep in rehearsal, we had Darcy James Argy produce that record and, and he's such a perfectionist and he's made so many records. He really has it down to a science. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we, we went wild basically with what was available in the studio. Like we super isolated everything. We did tons of editing. Um, we used a bunch of effects. We like, you know, did the whole studio thing to, to the fullest. Sure. And at the end of the day, what, what came out was sort of this like perfect representation of the scores, but, um, it was missing something, uh, intangible, you know? Sure. Interesting. Yeah. And yeah. 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 And, um, and I think there's actually a trend, um, in jazz right now towards perfection on records. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I think that that's doing a couple things, which is one giving people, um, like a very unrealistic idea of what a group sounds like in real life. Sure. And also is like robbing the music of some danger, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, so, um, yeah, I just realized I'm really not answering your question. No, no, but, I think, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> But, but anyways, um, that's a component too of a lot of my favorite records is like even even the studio like like they had a lot of control over Miles Ahead or Sketches of Spain or whatever. But it's not really about the fact that everything's perfect on those on those records. Like the way that Miles plays and like some of the cracks and whatever he's doing or like the way that the band is coming together. It's not it's not really you know it doesn't have to be pre- super precise. It's about the vibe of the whole thing. Exactly, and I think that that might come with experience in the studio you know like those guys were recording so much uh so many days of the year they would be in the studio so they were comfortable there and they felt free to take chances and to like make mistakes and they sort of probably knew like oh that take was awesome the magic was happening there but um for me i don't have that much experience in the studio every time i'm in the studio uh, if I had to guess, it might be five or six times in a year. It's really not a lot. Um, or like five or six separate sessions, and those might be over a few days. Sure. Um, so so every time I'm in the studio, I find myself just really focusing on not making mistakes, um, worrying about a million different details uh, from like where the catering might be at that moment to (laughs) somebody's late and we should have started tracking half an hour ago, you know? Sure. And yeah, especially um, if you're the leader of the group, not really in the zone of. Yeah. Right. Right. And so what I did with this live record was sort of like engineer a situation where, um, I wouldn't have, the chance to worry about it because it was, you know, it was all just happening. It was such a blur, you know? And, yeah, right. um, and so there are a lot of mistakes on the record and I do, couldn't care less. I love all of them, you know, as tends That's to happen. That's kind of amazing. Yeah. Sure. And the, the energy is just, I love the energy. I think that, um, 
it's a really exciting, I think it's getting closer to, um, a, you know, what I like in records, you know, it, sure. it feels, you can feel the tension, you can hear the interaction with the band and, um, and the difficult moments don't, they sound difficult because the, you can hear the band making mistakes or trying and failing. And, uh, and so I, I think it really makes for a nice, uh, listening experience. Sure. Know? And that's sometimes what you want too, is you want, there's a, there's that famous story of, um, Stravinsky going to Eastman or something like that. I don't know if you've ever heard this. And he, he kept trying to get people to play the, the bassoon solo and everybody could play it. And he was like, that's not what it's supposed to sound like. It's supposed to sound like the struggle of like he, he all the students were like killing themselves, shedding this stuff. And then they all played it for Stravinsky. He's like, this is all wrong because everybody plays it too well. You know? <laughs> right. Right. Wow. I have not heard that story. And I love that story. Um, yeah, exactly. It's exactly. the same thing. Mingus used to do it too, where it's like, no, the sound of it is like in some respects, you know, pushing the envelope a little bit. It's like pushing the musicians mm -hmm. to the limit. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, how do you have an idea for what your next project is and how would you do it with the understanding of how the live thing worked as opposed to the studio thing? Um, well, my next project is, uh, is my next small group record, um, okay. which is done and that's, uh, but the next big band project, I don't, I haven't even started thinking about um, it's every time I do a big band project, there's a long period afterwards where I just like, can't even remember how it all came together. And I can't even imagine doing it again. You know, <laughs> yeah. Th right. That's yeah. like how I feel right now. I'm I, just thinking about all the phone calls and writing and rehearsal and money and whatever. It's all so overwhelming to think about. So, um, so I don't know, but I, I mean, I've applied for a bunch of grants and I have an idea for a really cool project. Um, <clears throat> it just, I don't know how I'll find the resources to do it. Sure. Um, I can tell you about it if you want. Yeah. I'd it's, be interested um, to know for sure. It's, uh, it's, a it's a evening length. Um, I want to do a project with a, basically a death metal vocalist. Okay. Um, and the two people that I have in mind are either um, Mike Patton. Um, oh yeah. Who used? I mean, I, I don't know Bungle. how I'd get a. Yeah, I don't know how I'd get a hold of him, but he's one of my heroes, and um, and I really love his the expressive range of his voice, mm -hmm. and I really want somebody who's um, gonna do like guttural screaming. Um, sure. And. If, so if, if I can't get, find a way to get a hold of him, I also um, have been thinking about this singer named Devin Townsend, um, okay. who is a great death metal vocalist. But anyways. Well, who does um, he play with? Well, he had a really, really famous band called Strapping Young Lad in the uh -huh. 90s. Um, this and all sounds familiar to me, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. He's brilliant. He's a, such a genius. Um, hmm. So, but anyways... Um, the idea is I want to do a concept album about a, um, the main protagonist character struggles with, um, bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so 
the the um the sort of story or concept of the record would be his internal struggles and how they conflict with the way that he relates to the external world. And, um, and it needs to be somebody who can sing beautifully, but also just like scream terrifying guttural, uh, screams. Sure. And so I really want to do that. And I've, I've been applying for grants with that idea for years and never has anything come through. And I don't know if it's because maybe the, um, the, uh, material is is going to be triggering for a lot of people um maybe or but it, yeah. if it's yeah i mean the goal behind it would be to um sort of destigmatize talking uh, publicly about um mental illness and particularly bipolar because that's just something that's um important to me because it runs in my family and so sure um but uh but yeah, I don't know. I that's like a long term goal, but it's an idea sure. I've had for years and years, and so I I hope that I'll make it soon. Yeah. Have you started <laughs> you writing know? writing music for it? Yeah, I I I've, I've written um uh a lot of different sketches and also the whole like f- intro first track um is fully realized and okay. and ready. To, so sure. yeah. What's what's your what is your process in writing? Because it is, it's daunting to sit down and say, all right, this is an 18-piece band. You know, what's the, do, do you have a routine or how do you operate like that? I definitely don't have a routine, um, but I think I should. <laughs> do you? <laughs> I have I've found it useful to say to myself, all right, I'm going to go from 10 to noon or something like that every day and write. And, and the benefit to me in doing that is it just gets, it gets me over that thing that you're talking about, which is exactly right, which is you go, how am I supposed to do anything? Like, yeah, I know I've yeah. written a countless tunes and charts and whatever, and then you go, well, but how am I going to do that again? And the answer for yeah. me is just sit there and do it, you know? And sometimes right. there's some inspiration, but it's like, if, I, if the inspiration comes and I'm not sitting there, it's a different thing, but I try to force myself to do it, you know? Right. Uh, uh, that reminds me of... Uh, very much of a thing that Jim McNeely used to always say that he was my teacher and during my masters and mm-hmm. um, his whole thing was like writing with your sole goal being just filling up lines, you know, sure, like filling space. And, and he was like, um, and you know, there's a lot of writers like, um, you know, writers of prose or poetry who, do a similar thing. I know Ray Bradbury would just like sit and write and see where his subconscious was leading him. And sure. that was what McNeely like. Yeah. Bob so I definitely, used to talk about that as well. That's that probably idea. where McNeely got it then. Sure. Um, yeah. But, and so I tried to do that, you know, um, but I don't have a consistent time of day because I just know that the morning is the time where I'm going to be able to do whatever is the most, um, like nefarious task of the day. So I, I don't always like if I need to get some writing done, I'll do it in the morning. But if like I have some other deadline, um, I'll do that instead. Sure. Um, because I know just like once the morning's over, I start to lose, um, that drive and energy. Um, yeah. So, um, but my process is, is more just like, um, well, first of all, I keep a lot of folders 
and I like making lists. So anytime an idea occurs to me, like I can't tell you how many nights right as I'm about to fall asleep, I end up having to sit up and take out my phone and write a note to myself yeah, to yeah, be yeah. like, remember to do this. This is a cool idea. Yeah. Or rarely, but very rarely once in a while, I'll have to actually get out of bed and come into the studio and write out the idea. Um, but more often than not, it's just like a, a little note to myself to remind me. And it'll be something super vague. Like, wouldn't it be cool to have a texture where the, um, where all of the brass are glissandoing upwards while all of the, you know, something vague. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And then I also keep folders on my computer, you know, that I just fill with either like pictures, like as I was researching this, um, uh, concept album idea that I was telling you about, mm-hmm. I, yeah. I did, a, I did a lot of research about just like, um, a, just a huge variety of topics that might find their way into it somehow. Mm. Okay. And I would just either sc- screen grab, like if it was an article or if it was some poetry or if it was s- some like historical thing, just screen grab it, put it in a folder so you can look at it later. Sometimes it's just a picture and then you open the picture and remember the headspace you were in. So I would, I guess I would say it's very disorganized um, it's actually uh, sounds pretty organized all in all that you have all this stuff in one place. Cause it would be easy just to say, oh, that's a good idea, but I'll, I'll remember that later or whatever. Yeah. What do you, what do people call that palace brain or, or something yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that? The, a mind palace like, or something. Mind palace. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just, I just try to like have fun being creative. And then the hard part is editing all that stuff down. You know, you generate lots and lots of material and we're human beings, so we're pretty vain creatures. So I usually end up thinking that all of it's awesome, yeah. and uh, and I can't imagine like losing some of it. But then you have to, you know, to pick and choose. You can the, only fit so yeah. much music onto an album. But yeah. so when you go to then write, are you thinking? I mean, it, that's a really interesting approach because then you have all this stuff as inspiration. You can just look to. I mean, even literally look at and say, "This yeah. is the vibe that I'm going for." This is just something because uh, this music, instrumental music, maybe in general or jazz or modern, whatever it is, you know, whatever we're dealing in, is abstract. It's not like you're writing a song about you know whatever. There's lyrics and it's about how she broke your heart or something like. There's all kinds of there's a sort of a depth of emotion you can get to. But, but it's easy also to get kind of hyper-theoretical at times and just go into like, oh, these are these are like colors or whatever, but how do you ground that in something that is a, that's something that you're aiming at rather than just sounds abstract, you know? Right, right. And, you know, I, um, I've just noticed about myself, like I love music that is purely like theoretical, abstract, like whatever i i love all kinds of music but i found that i tend to write better if i give myself some sort of plot or trajectory or formal thing like yeah one of the pieces i'm like proudest of is is the suite from my first record called um tamil pious Mm -hmm. and the idea is so simple for that it's just i it's a mount tamil pious is a mountain by where my sister lives we like to hike it. And I thought it would be great to just make a piece that followed us on a hike and used the, um, natural surroundings, the elevation, the, um, density of the woods, the, um, 
you know, it's, it's, you hike down from the top of the mountain to a ravine that, um, that has like a little beach and ocean front where you can watch like whales and stuff. And so, oh, wow. and then you have where to, is this? it's in, um, uh, uh, Marin County. I don't know if it's pronounced Marin or Marin. Um, it's right o- across the bridge from San Francisco. Okay. Um, but anyways, and then to get up from the beach back to your car, you have to go up this thing called Dipsy Steps, which is like thousands and thousands of wooden steps up the side of the mountain. Hmm. And it's like a really um, physically strenuous. Anyways, it just seemed like a great um, like uh, outline for a piece. Sure. And then I just filled it in and it felt easy to do that. Um because so, you have something you're going for. It isn't, it's something that you could almost say, I find the same thing where oftentimes I'll write a piece on sort of a, on a small concept or on a theoretical concept or whatever, but without an idea of what it might be, I don't know when it's finished. I don't know if I've accomplished right. the goal exactly. And it could be super abstract, the the feeling or the concept or whatever, but just to have that thing to hold on to has always been helpful to me. But I know a lot of people have, you know, there's a totally, is, there couldn't be a more wide view on you know, how to approach that. Yeah. And it's all great. You know who I love? Um, and I wish I practiced, I practiced what he preaches, but I don't really, um, is John Hollenbeck. He Mm -hmm. advocates using a different process for each piece. Interesting. And that, that will guarantee you that each piece will definitely be different. Sure. And, um, and for him, the reason behind that is the goal of composing isn't about, the final product it's actually more about the process and what that teaches you about yourself and what kind of an exercise it is um you know meditatively but also um ethically and morally like um i remember seeing him speak about this whole idea where he was saying that for him if you know when you're alone in a practice room the only person who knows about your decision-making is yourself. And so if you want to do it lazily, nobody will know. Sure. If you want to rip something off that you've heard before, even if you don't mean anything bad by it, um, you might be able to cover it up and so nobody will know. You know. And so he tries to hold himself to a really high standard of the minute he recognizes something in his um, music that he's heard before or that he's done before, he immediately throws it away. <laughs> and sort of the only way for him to be able to ensure that um, every piece will be unique is to have the process itself be unique. Um, sure. And that blows my mind. I don't do that. Um, it's a lot. I, yeah, it seems exhausting, but I, I, I think it's definitely an ideal, you know? Sure. I respect the institution for sure. I wonder if he ever runs into trouble. And this is, I always wonder about this. Like if you come at it from a very different perspective, if you come at it from every piece from a different, uh, you know, direction, let's say it, how hard is it? I wonder to make a cohesive album or have the tune sound the same or whatever. Cause I can imagine, you know, any number of different ways of approaching a piece, but they may end up with very starkly different results. That's a great point. That's a great point. But if you can make it work, it works. And obviously Hollenbeck makes it work. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no question there. Yeah. You know, whatever. Is there a way that you think about the cohesion of the pieces that you're doing? Like if you're going to, when you're doing this record, when you're doing Live at the Jazz Gallery, are you thinking about, because you have three of your own tunes and then one a Ligeti 
piece and one, uh, that you arranged, and then one by your fiance that you arranged, right? Yeah. And it all, mm-hmm. to me, really is cohesive. It sounds like one big thing, and it all fits the same vibe, even though the tunes are are very different. But do you think yeah. about like how that's going to fit within the context of the band, or whether it's going to have a particular sound, or how you're doing that, or is it just I'm just going to create whatever, and it's going to come out the way it comes out? Yeah, I don't really. I don't worry about um, about that. I mean, I do worry about like um, who's going to be playing the music and making sure that they giving them parts to play that are like authentic to their style. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so I mean, and everybody in the band are close friends of mine and and people who I'm fans of, you know. Sure. Like, um, so I listen to their records. I go to their shows. I feel like I have a good idea of how they play. And when I write for them, I try to write things that I know they're going to slay. But, um, but I don't worry about if the, if the music itself will cohere because, um, I think that that sort of takes care of itself because it's like the room, the energy of the people, where it comes in the set, um, all those kinds of things, uh, just sort of you can't help but hear um like uh, what comes to mind is is my fiance molly's um song glow on it's very different from something i would ever write mm-hmm. um which is what excited me about arranging it for the band because it's this very diatonic melody um it's uh it's a long melody that has a lot of subtle differences from verse to verse and stuff and um it doesn't sound like a big heart machine piece to me at all that is what's exciting about it you know sure. same thing with um same thing with the ligety piece fanfares um it's it i i just wanted to be creative bring it in front of the band see what would happen and and there and don't get me wrong there are times when i do that and i just completely scrap something um like another one that comes to mind is that tune recessive is a pretty old tune um that's the second track on the record Mm -hmm. and big heart machines played it live twice over the years and uh it never worked and and so i never put it on anything and then all of a sudden i i just sort of you know one day was like going through unfinished things. And I was like, this is almost finished. I should try and make it work, (laughs) you know? And I figured out another way to present it that does work for the band. So, um, so yeah, that's a tough question because so much about the whole process of creating music is very, um, ethereal and, um, by necessity, hard to, explain hard to pin down yeah in many ways i think it's probably reflective of our own personalities in a way that if you were to like if you were to meet somebody new and the introduction was hey uh what what kind of a person are you (laughs) you know or something like that you'd be like whoa okay let's see what you know what i mean there's no way to to kind of view yourself maybe from an external perspective as long as you feel but as long as you feel like you're getting your point across it works you know Right. And I don't remember who said this, but I just heard recently. Oh, man, I wish I could remember. Um, I just heard recently somebody say, you are allowed to be more than one thing. 
don't let music industry people convince you that you need to have a brand, have a, you know, whatever. Right. And that hit, that hit me hard because, um, because it's true. I mean, we're all complex people. The reason we fall in love with an artist and their discography is because of the fascinating thing of look how different the music they made when they were 40 was when then when, when they were 30 or when they were 20 sure. and why, where they lived and who they surrounded themselves with. And, and so like, just to add on to what you're saying, I think it's important to, you know, we're often encouraged as musicians to have like a boilerplate. Like I make, um, metal influenced big band, like free jazz, you know, whatever. Sure. Like that's, that might be like a, th- a one sentence way I would describe big heart machine, but that doesn't mean that's what we always have to do. Right. The thing that makes a big heart machine is that it's us, you know, and we change and sure. Um, and you also don't want to, you don't want to fall prey to limiting yourself because you're f- trying to follow that that path that you think people are going to, that you can put into a magazine or on the back of the CD or whatever. Like you have to follow whatever. And if people did that, if Miles Davis was sitting around in 1952 going, well, what's my thing supposed to be? Like, there's no way he's going to end up, he's going to look back and say, well, I'm not exactly Dizzy Gillespie, but I'm in the, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like we wouldn't have all this stuff where he said, all right, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And it's the same thing with anything. If Thelonious Monk was like, well, it's kind of like James P. Johnson meets, you know, Duke Ellington or, you know, whatever. It's not, that's not the vibe. It's like, no, you do whatever it is that, that is expressive of your own time and place and your background and everything. Exactly. Monk definitely never sat down and, and said, I'd like to create uh, an original angular approach to piano voicings. Like right. he just sat at the piano and was drawn to things that he thought sounded beautiful and then luckily for us, we got to watch how it evolved over the course of his career and all right. the records he made, you know? Yeah. And luckily, so. luckily he committed to it, too, because there's no telling what kind of a backlash he might have gotten at any given time. And, and not right. just certainly not just Monk. You know, I mean, Ornette Coleman at the time, he had to stand there and say, this is the thing. This is what I'm doing <laughs> while everybody was trying to figure out what it was, you know, and it's kind of it's fortunately for us. They did it. You know, they stuck with it. Right. What was that? What was the origin of the Big Heart Machine? How did you start it? And also, what, where does the name come from? Okay, well, the name... Um, I'll start with the name. I had a band for a hot moment that was called Heart Machine. And that band was a quartet. It was me, Jason Berger on drums, Sam Yolzman on piano, and Adam O'Farrell on trumpet. Mm-hmm. And um, then I took all the book of music that I wrote for that band... Um, and I just arranged it for big band and without overthinking it, I just called it big heart machine. Um, and I wasn't sure at the time if the band name was a good idea or not. I just knew that, um, I don't like that, um, in the world of jazz, we tend to, um, focus on the band leader Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's very interesting to most people. Sure. Like you or I would know if we're like, oh, did you check out the new Avishai Cohen trio record? Like a jazz aficionado would be like, oh, that's exciting. But um, I wanted to make music that would that didn't 
give the listener, or I wanted to create a presentation that didn't give you a preconceived notion about what you were about to hear. Sure. And so it's not you of, and a bunch of other people. It's the whole atmosphere right. of the group. Right. And I just definitely didn't want it to be about me. And actually like one, one kind of, um, oblique influence was the band snarky puppy mm-hmm. even though i'm i i wouldn't say i'm a fan of that band at all i just they were becoming big at the time when i was starting big heart machine mm-hmm. and i th- i was like or you know so many bands before them um uh like uh just having a band name sure immediately makes it more interesting because it gives you some it gives you like different heroes to fall in love with you know like some like why do we love bands like led zeppelin everybody's got to have their favorite um i'm a john bonham guy you know or sure whatever. Yeah, yeah 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 and um and i i like that i want people to to um get attached to the whole thing and not just um me and also i wanted it to be a commitment to the people in the band um it was really important to me at that time and it still is now to make sure they understand that um it's it's that i appreciate their effort and i consider them a part of the band because um i don't want it to just be a thing where people show up and sit in their chair and read the parts and go home i want it to be like they know that their part is for them and so they put every ounce of themselves into it you know sure absolutely yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So that was why I chose to use a band name. I do think it has confused a lot of people over the years. Um, <laughs> in, what, in what regard? You know, well, just people will meet me and have no idea who I am and then realize that that my band is Big Heart Machine and, and then, like, you know, make connections. It might have been, like, more, like, um, pragmatic to just call it the Brian Crock Big Band or the Brian Crock Large Ensemble or something. Sure. So there wouldn't, wouldn't be any confusion, but... Um, but I, I, I prefer it this way. Yeah. You've committed uh, to the, to the vibe and that's, I think that's critical. And, um, and, uh, and the thing about band names is that it doesn't matter if they're good or not. You know, I like, that's certainly true. I've noticed that many times (laughs) over the years. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's just like, it becomes its own thing. Right. You don't think about it anymore. Like you hear the name, you hear the name fish, like five times you're like that's funny it's fish but with a ph and then it doesn't yeah. take long before that just becomes its own thing it's you just, don't think about it at all exactly right um <laughs> but how did the band start well um it was basically the people who i was going to school with at the time that i started the band around mm-hmm. 2000 um like 2013 or 14 um, sure where, where are we going to school so i did my master's in manhattan school of music okay mm-hmm. and a lot of the people on the first Big Heart Machine record were like the people who played my, uh, my, what do you call it? Recital. Um, sure. My master's recital or whatever. And, and did, um, you, did you do composition? Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. which was awesome because, um, I still got to participate in the playing stuff. Um, but, uh, but I, so I, you know, I, I feel like I was lucky in that my classmates, still invited me to play with them. So I, I still improved rapidly during that time as a mus- as a instrumentalist, mm-hmm. but I got to take private lessons with a bunch of different faculty members. My main uh, person throughout the whole two years was Jim McNeely, but I also took classical composition lessons and um, 
I took classes on like scores, um, score reading. That was one of my favorite classes, hmm. um, where we would do like crazy things. Like the teacher had us like, at first it was just sitting at the piano and sight reading string quartets. And so you have to deal with the alto and tenor clefs. And yeah. then it was like transposing multiple different instruments at the same time. Um, like, instruments in f and b flat and e flat sure and and then it was just like brain twisters like uh we played this fun game all the time where you would get a note you would be assigned a note so like your note would be f my note would be e flat and we'd have to scan the score as it was going and you'd look for every single e flat and try to sing it so like (laughs) if if the if the like uh, soprano saxophone was playing E flat on beat one, you'd sing that. But then if the bass had an E flat on the end of three, you'd try to grab that as well. And but so the whole time you're transposing. Yeah. So you're learning to like quickly transpose, quickly scan a page. I loved that class. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> That's a lot, was, man. I don't know. It was yeah, I, I could I see it a, being fun. I could see it being a puzzle for like an immediate puzzle solving thing. But like, yeah, yeah, that's a brain twister for sure, man. You got to dive deep. It takes a certain yeah. kind of person, I think, to really get into it. I can imagine that would be a polarizing exercise. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people dreaded it. Um, but so, yeah, so like, I mean, the I just I don't know if it's like it's probably not luck um, because I, I I'm just a very emotional and like I tend to get philosophical but I just love the people that I happen to meet at school Mm -hmm. and I've always worked with them ever since and so um like Ollie Hervona the guitar player Mm -hmm. he was the my first session I ever played in New York like my dad and I drove out here he left and then the next day I like went and knocked on Ollie's practice room door and asked if we could play and he's still been in every project that I've ever done. And Marty Kenny is similar thing. And, um, and I know everybody in the band. So, sure. Uh, Man, you know what I want to say is I want to say somebody like Ollie is a per- is such a perfect choice for that, for that, for the guitar part, because he's got like a particular wide range of sounds. Like he can sound like the, like kind of like a more, f- I don't know, folky is the right word, but like Telecaster vibe and then can also shred or whatever. But I realize as I'm thinking this, that probably the reason that is is because you're thinking of him in that part as you're writing the parts anyway it, it sounds right, like you exactly. have a, a sort of an ellingtonian <clears throat> approach to writing for the members of the band rather than writing and then trying to find people to fill the seats right exactly that's the goal the um and it's funny like um you know i'm doing this like new video series and i just finished a video this morning about carla blay mm-hmm. and so so far Every composer that I've wanted to study about and do a video about, I've found a bunch of quotes from people in their band being like, you could tell they wrote, the other person was Billy Strayhorn. Mm -hmm. Um, That was the first video I did. Everybody talks about how they could feel that their parts were written specifically for them. And, um, and I just think that's, we call it Ellingtonian, but I think it's more just like, a good band leader sure. and yeah. you know yeah. and he probably wasn't the first or the last to to do that you know no doubt but he certainly had a knack for it that to really highlight oh, my, those people yeah i mean that's why we that's why we re- associated with his band because again right. it's like each person in his band is like their own 
like superhero, like trading card, you know, like yeah. you, you're like, <laughs> for sure. You know, yeah, yeah. Or at yeah. least that's how I think about it. Yeah, no doubt. <clears throat> yeah. And, uh, man, so let's see here. Let's see. <laughs> Where do we leave yeah. off? The Ellingtonian <laughs> element of it. Um, so do you find now here's a tricky thing is in New York, we're dealing with so many musicians who are at such a high level and have so many things going on. How do you manage to try to get the same or a like, is it, it's gotta be a very similar group, you know, Mm -hmm. set to set or whatever, but it's gotta be, you have to overcome the frustration of the fact that you can't always get everybody at rehearsals or somebody's going to be playing a different part or, yeah. I mean, how much does it change over time or do you really, I mean, it sounds like you really try to stick to a, a consistent band, which as opposed to the Ellington group is not easy to do. Ellington, of course, had the advantage of being on the, I mean, I guess I'll call it an advantage, but the advantage of being on the road like 360 nights a year or whatever, right, like exactly. crazy thing. So and, that band was as tight as the, it can get, but it's not easy to making, keep that going. They were making such great salaries that sure. some of the guys stayed in the band for their whole career, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, well, I think big band players naturally gravitate towards that world. And so you, I mean, you know, this all too well, um, you just figure out who are the people who are down to do things, um, even though they're going to be, um, uh, logistically nightmarish, you know, sure. <laughs> and you, and you, <laughs> and you try to keep those people in your circle, but then, um, but then, yeah, you also have to be flexible, understanding that um, that people's careers are multifaceted, and um, and they need to make th- a living and stuff. So, um, so having a good um, sub list is great. Also, being open to letting um, to giving opportunities to younger people. Mm-hmm. Um, who you might maybe don't know as well, but who are looking for their first opportunities um, uh, and who don't need to be paid as much, you know, sure. to be, you know, so. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, and that's always the struggle too, because it's not the same. I mean, there just isn't the same audience that Ellington had or whatever. It's a different thing right. and it's a niche mm-hmm. thing. So the people who are doing it, and this is a, this is kind of the beauty in New York too, really love to do it. I mean, they're showing up, you know, whatever you can make on a big band gig is really more about, it's not about the money as much as it is playing music that you like. And there's so many amazing musicians that are willing to, that just want to show up and play a rehearsal at the union from, you know, 11 to one on a Tuesday because it's going to be fun to play. Right. Well, I mean, it's, it's the thing that I'm missing probably the most out of anything right now is that camaraderie. Like, you know, as gigs start to come back, probably the very very last thing that'll come back will be the big band gig because <laughs> there's no way to socially distant to right. do that yeah. like ethically or whatever sure exactly so it, yeah. it'll have to be it'll have to be after there's a um uh you know vaccine or something like vaccine that vaccine and right exactly so um, I think people are going to be really excited to be playing big band gigs when, when all is said and done, Boy, because it's just will, like, yeah. there's so many friends that we have who you just don't get to see them except you get to play, sit next to them for a rehearsal or a gig or whatever. Right. Yeah, of course. So, and it's definitely not, I mean, it's great that everybody's doing all, you know, these remote videos and everything, but 
It's just not the same thing at all. It's it's actually no. it's been really eye opening. You know, everybody I think is trying to find the silver linings here. But one of the things that has been that I've come to realize is since I was, I don't know, eighteen, I've just been playing constantly, basically. And this mm-hmm. is the this is the first time in and I in ever in my adult life that I've just been that I haven't been able to play with other people. And it's something mm-hmm. that you just take it's easy to take for granted when it's just something that you do all the time. I mean, I always love doing it. I always enjoy it and I'm always happy when I get to show up and play. But now when I'm here, I'm I'm like trying to I find myself trying to find ways of being creative because I miss so much the interaction between other people and just playing music in real time. Same. Yeah, it's um, we, you know, my mom just sent me a text today with a picture, um, from exactly a year ago because my band was on tour and we were playing in Chicago and my mom was in the audience and she mm-hmm. said, can you believe this was a year ago? And I, excuse me, I realized so vividly that the world was just a completely different place and how much I took it for granted that, that we were able to get in a car, drive to a bunch of different states, play music for crowds full of people touching each other, shake hands with a bunch of strangers, um, sleep in a bunch of random Airbnbs and hotel rooms and whatever. Um, and, uh, and, and what, how lucky it was to have that as a lifestyle. Um, yeah. And, uh, and then also just like to have my social life be, ingrained in my professional life um to where pretty much every single night of the week I was out of the house and I was with people I loved and laughing my ass off and you know like it was a it's being a musician is a really really great standard of living it's like it's awesome yeah the quality of life even though it, it doesn't come close to comparing financially to a lot of other careers I just I got accustomed to this really cushy, beautiful, like, um, environment and I miss it so much. I think that I haven't, uh, fully dealt with it. And part of what I've been doing, um, which (laughs) has been, you know, I don't know how personal I should get, but part of what I've been doing is like really, um, overworking, to avoid dealing with the emotions that I've been having. Sure. So like, even though all of my gigs have been canceled and technically every single day is a free day, a day off and we could do whatever, like we could watch a bunch of movies or go to the park or whatever. I've pretty much been waking up earlier than I ever have wanting to go back to bed cause I'm tired, but I can't because I'm so full of anxiety about my future. Sure. Yeah. And then, and then just working maniacally all day long on like video content and whatever, just be, because I don't want to leave myself time to think about the loss of, of all the work and all the beauty that it was bringing to my life, you know? Sure. No doubt. Yeah. And everybody, I was going to ask you about that, actually, because everybody's got such a different way of coping with this kind of a thing, you know. And some people right. are like, I find it interesting, and I, I myself go through phases, but in the beginning, uh, you know, you'd have some people were like, 
oh, okay, well, this gives me a ton of free time to do all this stuff, you know, all the stuff I've been meaning to do. And then there's a whole, you know, other faction of people that's like, man, I, I just can't bring myself to be creative at all, you know, and, and everybody right. operates with it differently. I go through, the be- in the beginning, I had this momentum from doing all this other stuff, like basically booking gigs and getting ready to, for the spring over the wintertime. And I was like, mm-hmm. I was on it forever. I was like, man, I haven't had this time much time to practice trumpet since I was in grad school. Like, I was, I was loving it in some respects. You know what I mean? Sure. And then I'll go yeah. through some days. I'm like, then I'm like, well, part of the benefit of having the gigs and having the rehearsals is to force you to finish the charts or to have things prepared or you know have a right. deadline is huge. So then, without a deadline, sometimes I'm like, wait a minute, what am I, do- what am I doing here? Is this like, yeah. is there a grounding in this? But I mean, everybody's oh, got a different man, approach. I, I, I feel you so much. I, what happened to me was that um, I got really sick right at the beginning. I'm pretty sure I had coronavirus, but I never got tested. Sure. Um, it was weird because I my symptoms were very different from what at the beginning we thought were the symptoms. Uh-huh. I was like, I, I didn't have a fever, um, but I was like, completely exhausted just body aches all day long couldn't get off the couch so i thought at the time that i had a sinus infection or something Mm -hmm. and in retrospect now i've heard so much about how that my symptoms of malaise are pretty common for some people um so now i i can't wait to for the antibody tests to become more reliable because i'm gonna get one Um, sure yeah but anyway, so I spent like the first like two straight weeks, maybe even more than that, of the quarantine, just laying on the couch, really depressed, watching TV, just so exhausted and sick. Um, so by the time I was out of that, I just couldn't wait to like use my body, you know? Sure, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I started like I started exercising a lot and practicing a lot, and <clears throat> and um, I do think that the opportunity here is is about our our relationship as musicians with technology and the internet and blah 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 like learning final cut pro i just even though i'm all of every bone in my body is telling me to save money um <clears throat> because i you know cuz gigs right of course i had just bought a camera and made that investment because I just, I think if we needed a wake up call, this is it. Like, yeah, the internet is, is our friend. And so I feel like the opportunity that is presented itself is like people branching out and making video content, you know, doing podcasts and just trying to like help each other all grow our world sure, and what we, what we love to do and figure out a way for it to live, um, yeah. Without, so that by the time my hope is that by the time we're back to gigging like normal, we'll all also keep these new skills that we've learned, mm-hmm. and they will help the whole thing uh, thrive a little bit more. Yeah, you know? I totally agree. I think that's the that's that's another one of the silver linings here is that we've been forced, you know, we've been dragged kicking and screaming into the 21st century. But yeah. I think I think especially in in the jazz world and the improvised music world like we are the people who have dedicated our lives basically to blowing air through a tube. Like I play, <laughs> you know, I play on an instrument from 1945. Like we're not dealing with, you know, this isn't this isn't Flying Lotus or whatever. Like we're dealing with 
these kind of an old school approach. And yet now, yeah. like I've been, uh, it's been interesting to see like everybody on Facebook or whatever is like, oh, okay, I'm what, what do I need to get for an interface and like a microphone and how do I do yeah. remote recording and yeah. you know, all this other stuff. And yeah, I think you're right, especially with the, I mean, like you're doing the, um, the score study videos and things of that nature, like being able to put out just ideas, just to be able to kind of spread different ideas, you know? And right. uh, I mean, I, st- I started doing this in before before the thing before the lockdown. But then to do it, I was like, well, I have to keep doing this. <laughs> like it's, you right, know, right, right. This is what we and, have. And it's a good opportunity to connect with people, even despite the, you know, not being able to play gigs or anything. Right. Um, and. Well. <clears throat> you know, I, I well, I don't know, I. I'm hoping that because like I'm not practicing nearly as much as I should be. I've pretty much always delayed um, engaging with like the Internet um, and making up excuses. Um, You know, I should be practicing. I don't have that much free time, which is true. You know, when you're a gigging musician, it's uh, it's a super exhausting hustle you know you're like constantly learning new music and then you have to go to a summer rehearsal at 10 in the morning and then run to the bronx for a gig at six and then you know like you're out all night it's funny funny that when you said cushy earlier i was like i don't know (laughs) i think you're the only person who's ever called that lifestyle cushy man i had never called it cushy before but it, it is cushy because it's like it's really really beautiful it's yeah it is like yeah. most people you know i my perspective in calling it cushy is looking at you know my siblings and my cousins and people who are in the professional world who are just constantly like you know pulling me aside and saying oh, man you're so lucky your your life seems so fun and like and it, and it was yeah I mean, it is but um and it will be traveling again. It was exhausting yeah. and it was anxiety. It was full of anxiety because it was, you're constantly having to think ahead about where your money's coming from and all that. But, um, right. but, um, so I always had excuses. I was always like, I've got this to do. I've got this to do. I just don't have the time. And I would always say to myself when I saw people who were active, like on their YouTube channel or active doing, I would always say, how do they find the time? You know? Yeah. And, um, and I think the truth is you have to make the time and people who, um, who have been spending years engaging, doing gig vlogs or doing podcasts or whatever, they're in a great position now because they've been learning it over the years and they're set up and ready to go. I'm in a phase where I'm just learning, you know, sure. but I'm, I'm hoping that when the quarantine's over, I'll be like ready to integrate it into my real life, you know? Sure. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how that goes too. how, you know, I'll be very interested to see the way in which people then structure their lives after this. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things too, that I didn't realize that I was doing, um, like from like now I will go, uh, on a walk with Emily through the park on a, Sunday afternoon or something like that. Just yeah. to look at stuff and to be outdoors. You know what I mean? And like before <laughs> that, 
I mean, it sounds crazy, but if you have a regular job, if you got a, if you're a, if you're a business person, you get your weekends or whatever. But before that, there was just no chance that Emily wasn't going to have a thing here, or I wasn't going to be playing a show in Poughkeepsie or whatever, or that you know right, the odds right. of us being in the same place is being like, well, what's what is there to do today? You know, like well, let's go walk around and do nothing for a couple hours and just enjoy the I outdoors. Know. There might be some of that that we're able to actually bring with us to some degree, you know? Yeah. And that's, I like, I couldn't agree with you more because Molly is an actress and both of us tour a lot and uh, both of us have a lot of side hustles and stuff. So like we're both busy constantly. And just like you said, even though it se- it might seem to somebody who has a more typical, um, Monday through Friday, nine to five type of a situation. It might seem like being freelance, um, is like great because you have all this time, but really you have to make time to take a day off. You right. like, it's exactly what you just said. You, you would, you, there, there's just never a situation where you're like, Oh, I, I'm, I'm going to just do nothing today. You always sort of feel like you need to be looking towards the next thing right there's always that little guy on your shoulder being like shouldn't you be practicing or writing charts or something yeah or if you're not doing that shouldn't you be emailing dozens of people and and (laughs) following up on those emails and it's just there's always something and if it's not that it's like you know like one of the first things i did in quarantine was revamp my websites right Um, yeah you know like i hadn't done that and yeah (laughs) you know sure so um, so yeah, that is good. I mean, um, Molly and I on Saturday to celebrate the release of, uh, on Friday of the, of the big heart machine record, mm-hmm. we took, we took Saturday off and literally didn't do anything. Just laid in the park, went to our favorite pizza place and got takeout pizza and like, it was awesome. So it's great. So from time to time, that's all right, you know, but I'll tell yeah. you, and it speaks to your point just about the, I think about what a beautiful life it is in some regard, being able to be an artist or to be able to create things. The problem is too, like the plague of it is that all the stuff that we do, we almost want to do, you know, we basically want to do like the problem right. is too, is that sometimes Emily and I will schedule like, all right, we're going to take a, we're going to take a day off this day. And then we'll both get gigs. We're like, but we want to do those gigs. Like we want to yeah, play. Like, like we get, this is you know. an awesome gig. And yeah, you know, so sometimes say no. you just get caught up in, oh, this is going to be fun to do it anyway. You know? Yeah. This could be a whole nother podcast. Just talking about uh, re- relationships and, and a creative career, you know? Right. Yeah. 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 Oh, for sure. Yeah. Go on endlessly. Yeah. Uh, how do you think about playing in the band versus conducting it? Thinking back to what you were talking about, about like playing the saxophone and practicing and, and having that balance or whatever, like, cause you played in it for a while, but the last record you conducted, right? Yeah. And that goes back to your question about what do you do when people aren't free? Um, because my whole idea was to always have Mio Hazama conduct Big Heart Machine because she's just an incredible conductor and having her in front of the band, excuse me, allowed me to relax. Mm-hmm. Sure. Cause I knew she'd make sure everything would work and, um, uh, she couldn't make this, the gig. And so I just thought, you know what? I know the music better than anybody else. I can practice. I think one of the things I never really put together about conducting was like, I would always just be like, I'm not a good conductor. And that's bullshit because, I'd never practiced. So right. of course yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course I wasn't good. Like what did I just expect myself to 
be naturally talented at doing such an esoteric thing. Right. Like, so I just practiced a lot and, um, and I actually like conducting now, um, a little bit better than playing because, Mm. um, like Emily, uh, you know, I'm a woodwind guy and before a gig, there's just, it's just too many variables, like all the reads and making sure all your instruments are warmed up and doing that all in the right order and not overplaying so that you can't play piccolo or alto flute or whatever. Um, sure. I just wanted to separate that from my own creative life because, you know, I do that for work anyways. And, um, and so, yeah, so I, I, I like conducting. I do think that, um, it, it's a, it's a really hard thing to do well. And, and it's very easy to be as a conductor, to be, um, a hindrance more than a help, you know, to, sure. to like do something that screws up the band and they would have been fine if you just weren't standing there waving your arms, you know? Right. Yeah. 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 So, um, but at least yeah, if it's your know. music and you know, the music, it's like, it's more likely than not, you'll give them in the, you know, get them in the right direction. Yeah, exactly. But that's interesting, man. It's interesting that you've had like that you've, that you've come to enjoy conducting are, are, the next project you do. Are you more likely to conduct or would you play saxophone again? I'll probably conduct from now on big heart machine, hmm. um, and play saxophone in my small group and just call it a day there because, um, yeah, like, um, I love woodwind doubling, but what I love about it, I think is different than what I love about, playing creative original music i think what i love about woodwind yeah like i think what i love about woodwind doubling is that there is a prescribed path towards getting good at it like i know what i need to do in order to get the results that i want um because you can you can remove yourself from it and just say like this is like the this is considered like a good sound on the clarinet Mm -hmm. This, this is the person in New York who everybody tries to sound like. And so that's the ideal. I'm just going to go for that. And, and then you can diagnose quickly what your issues are. But in creative music, when you're trying to play like yourself, there's no way to do that. You can't, you can't, <laughs> you can't say like, oh, well, if I, if I just like, it's just a lot more um, about, uh, you know, giving yourself time and, and space to try things and um, reaching for a certain goal. And, and if you miss, it doesn't matter because you landed somewhere else. Interesting. You know? Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so it's the vagueness of it. It just, those two worlds don't seem to go together for me, you know? Interesting. Sure. Um, I'd rather be able to just take risks and fail and, Honestly, when you're like sitting in a pit and you're about to play an oboe solo, there's no room for taking a risk and failing. (laughs) You're you're gonna spend a couple weeks beforehand, like dialing it in and making sure you do the same order of events, like perfectly, to make sure you you'll do that as well as possible. You know. Yeah, that's interesting because I feel like a lot of people have very uh, will be in one camp or the other. In that I know a lot of people, especially. I think, well, I don't want to generalize, but a lot of people in Broadway world are really great. Their love is, all right, the music is going to be in front of me. I'm going to crush it. 
It's going to, yeah, every note yeah. is going to be right. Like the fun of it is like nailing the part. And there's, it's the same thing I think with a lot of lead trumpet players are like that. It's just like, no, yeah. this is going to, we're going to hit it and it's going to be correct. Whereas a sure. lot of other people have the mindset of, you know, okay, well let me, tr- and I'm probably more in this camp of like, all right, well, what can I do with this or whatever? Or like, sure. I could never see myself playing the same thing night to night to night to night. But it seems like you've actually encompassed both sides of that thing. But it's almost like you have a, well, a like, dual personality going on. It's it's like it's like I said at the very beginning of this conversation is that you can be more than one thing. You know what I mean? Like, For sure. You don't have to. Um, so, like right after I graduated from my master's, I fell into a Broadway touring, a first national tour thing that mm-hmm. was like a great job, and I said yes. And then I played like over a thousand shows of Flashdance the Musical over the course of a few years. Mm-hmm. And I would have never thought I could see myself doing that, but I'm so glad I did because first of all, that enabled me to do so much like pay for making records and stuff. Like that mm-hmm. was like my first time I was really making money. And, um, and so it gave me a lot of free space in my head to stop worrying so much and be like, all right, I know for a few years now I've got a paycheck. So what am I going to do with my free time? I loved sure. that feeling. I, I would love to have it again. I haven't had it since. And it's been like five or six years now since I've been touring. And, um, but, uh, so, but then I, you know, like, like I'm sure Emily talks about playing shows or playing radio city or whatever. After a certain number of shows, you stop having fun. You go through these weird waves where it gets really boring and you just like, can't even imagine doing it again, but you have to. Yeah. And then I just realized like for my own sanity, I needed to start thinking about it differently and finding the creative challenge in another Avenue. Like the creative challenge wasn't going to be, um, like, what can I do with the music? It was going to be like, how can I, um, or I started to think like a lot about like bands. Like I started to think about the band Metallica. Mm-hmm. Like how does, how does Kirk Hammett get himself out of bed and say, <laughs> I'm going to play master of puppets for the 15,000th time Yeah, right. and give it my all. Like I'd never thought about that before. It's heroic being sure. able to do that, you know? Right. Yeah. And I think it has to come from like the desire to see if you can just do something consistently night after night and that's a huge challenge in and of itself and um and then i got into that because it just became a new world of music where i didn't have to um i didn't have to concern myself with um putting my emotion into it or like i never ever play a show and and like find myself like laughing at the jokes or getting choked up at the emotional moment like i i'm more interested in the um in the just like workmanship of it, the craft of it. And I love getting the chance to like sit next to one of those people that you're talking about. Who's like, you know, like a, um, um, well, I I don't want to mention any names because I don't want to pigeonhole somebody. Sure. If I don't really know, but you know, people who are like, uh, just super consistent, um, you know, and, and, um, always play everything perfectly you know right yeah. i like wanting i like seeing what makes them tick and what can i learn from that you know mm-hmm. sure. i've actually been take, taking lessons recently with somebody who i'm sure emily is a friend of um rick heckman mm-hmm. who's been giving me read making lessons okay um 
And he is a Broadway woodwind doubler. I think he's played 50 or 60 shows in his career. Like he's been the main chair. Yeah. Yeah. Uh He's, I think he's averaged about two or three different shows every year for his whole career. That's Um, pretty wild. Cause he's just like, so oriented towards like every day, like how can I make a little bit better of a read and, and then the getting into that and how can I play? He worries about like the, you know, the temperature and the humidity, the, number of minutes that each horn is on your face. Like he worries about things that I never usually think about. And sure. And I've been, I've been digging sort of seeing that perspective. No doubt. Yeah. Getting, getting you know? deep in the weeds on the specifics of that kind of thing. It reminds yeah. me, do you ever, do you ever see the documentary hero dreams of sushi? Oh, sure. Yeah, definitely. That was like one of the first like documentaries that was, uh, were, I, I shouldn't say that there've been many, many amazing, but that one was like a huge deal. Like everybody saw that. Right? Yeah. 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 You know? But that's, that was, that's um, the vibe is this guy doing the same, essentially the same thing for whatever it was like 65 years or something every day and just yeah. really digging into the quality of the of the thing it's a super zen kind of approach of just saying all right well every time i do this it's going to be as perfect as i can make it yeah and and also you saying that just reminded me that like the first big heart machine record all of that music i like um wrote and arranged while I was on the road, because another big problem I had on, on with touring was like, um, you know, like when we do jazz tours or whatever, um, you're always like every day you're on the road a lot of the day and you don't really ever have time to yourself. Yeah. But on like the, the Broadway shows, like you sit down in a city for like a week or two or sometimes a month. And you don't have anything to do all day until it's seven o'clock and you go play a show that you could play in your sleep. Right. And so I, I, a big problem I was having was just like boredom and, um, and I would have never, ever had the time to write all that music Mm. if I didn't have all day free. Like now I find it so hard to write, um, big band music because you're doing it in these little holes of free time. Sure. Um, Whereas that, and I could do that all day, every day and not feel guilty because I knew I would be going to work at night, you know? Right, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting point. It's a, it actually sheds some light on, on, because it seems like you've been a super productive man. You like put, you put out the record in 2000, what, 18? The yeah. Big Heart Machine. And then you did this one now. I mean, it's, it's a lot to write all this stuff or whatever, but to have that, yeah. to have that time in the beginning to have the, you know, the, all right, you get to work at night and then your whole day is writing is a pretty good opportunity, but it's not yeah. always easy to find that, you know, in our normal I think day-to-day that, life. Yeah. I think that you just like basically summarized my dream life and, and I, I've never felt it since I was in my early twenties basically. Sure. But like, um, I love, I love getting to do like a, a long subbing for a Broadway person. Like if you can play a whole week of shows, I love that because if you're just playing one show, if you're just subbing for one show, that's a a huge amount of work and stress for only a couple hours of work and not that much of a, of a, you know, monetary reward. But if you do it all week, you don't have to do that every day. You do the, you just kind of show up to the theater and all your stuff is there and, and it, it frees up so much time and that I love that. I would love to have like a steady gig, every day 
Um, but I know that that's just like such a rare thing and, um, and, but that's an know. attainable goal. I mean, it sounds like you're going in that direction, the ability to, to be able to play the shows and do the multiple woodwind thing and yeah. be able to nail it and then be able to write in during the day. Right. And, you know, like actually like some of my um, musical heroes are people that um, like listeners of this podcast probably would never have heard of because they're like working musicians. Uh-huh. And, well, give them um, a shot. I'm curious myself. Like, anyway. like. Well, the first guy who like allowed me to start working basically was is named Brian Crook, and like I remember when I met this guy. Yeah, if we met because <laughs> of our similarity of our names, oh, and right? we ended up we ended up becoming really good friends. And I, when I met him, he blew my mind because he's like, uh, you know, fifteen years older than me. He's got a wife and three kids that he supports playing music. And I met him right after I met or right after I moved out here. Mm-hmm. And I, I was like, okay, this guy like does it. It's possible to do. Like you can you can play music and make a living. And um, sure. as I got to know him better, I realized like he does so much creative stuff every single day that he doesn't worry about if it like you know he'll just be like oh I I would, like wrote songs on guitar all day for what reason. Uh, just because i wanted to you know like to me that's awesome like yeah that's really creativity and he's not worried about um whether people even hear it um and then he also does multiple woodwind stuff and um and i i don't know i think that's really cool or like charles pillow comes to mind one of my all-time heroes Mm -hmm. he does so much creative he's put out a bunch he's put out two big man records in the past two years that's wild which is which is crazy that's like and (laughs) and he teaches at eastman and he plays frozen every night and um i think that's so cool man like that uh, is encouraging too to to see that to see the people who are like the working people who are super creative and still make it happen you know there's yeah there were a lot of people that i met in boston who had that same kind of approach i'm from boston originally and i went to school out there but um i think i think in particular of do you know do you know joe morris a guitar player Oh sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, I don't don't know. But. Sure, but but he has a like he plays only the music that he wants to play, and he lives yeah. in a house and he's got a family and he's got a life. You know what I mean? These kinds of people, it's like, yeah. man, this it's possible to do it. You know, it's funny because right. the view of musicians by the general public is like you're either Bruce Springsteen or you're like you know you're sleeping in a gutter or something like that. Like, but there's this whole <laughs> yeah. world that we live in that's people who are able to make it happen and do the thing day to day and be creative and. But it's a constant struggle. Right. There's no doubt that there's the hustle involved, you know, trying to keep it yeah. together. And and at the end of the day, I, I think, like, if if you, like, I think that I had a lot of problems when I was younger that were related to, like, sort of, like, um, ego, basically. Like, being like, this is boring, or I should be doing something cooler than this, or whatever. And I, I just, it was a problem with my own orientation to the world. And Mm -hmm. I think that if you really look at who the best musicians have been, they seem to always be people who are like eternally learning and open-minded. Sure. And so like, I don't think that if like, if things had gone differently for Herbie Hancock and he didn't get that gig with Miles, maybe he would have, he would have ended up um, doing something else. But I, I, 
I'm sure he would have approached it with his open mind, like childlike wonder and tried to learn as much as he could about it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so that's, I think what I'm trying to emulate, you know, is like you have a choice when you're approaching a situation, like you could be like, Oh man, this is the third wedding I've played this weekend. This sucks. Or you could try really, it, it just takes effort. And so it's, you can't be lazy, but you could try to approach it and be like, what could I do? That would be interesting. Like, and sure. Right. You know, like, how am I going to make for, this fun? Yeah. How am yeah, I going to make exactly. this new and different every night? Right. And that's important, especially in the weddings, because that's their most, imp- that's like one of the most important days of their lives. I hate to see people phoning, you know, just coming in and phoning it in. It's like, man, these people, like we're here enhancing the night for these people who are, you know, but it's not always easy. I find myself having to c- find ways of being creative, you know, without, uh, right, right. you know, keeping myself involved in the music without overdoing it, you know. Right, right. I was fortunate to play with a band in Boston who'd let me bring my slide trumpet in and play parts on, you know, that's shed cool. slide trumpet on the thing, do whatever, get it together. You that's know? cool. Uh, I got a, I've got a couple other things for you. When you were on the road, is are there particular influences that you can pinpoint in when you're writing that music, like things that you were trying to uh, synthesize, maybe or or put into the music, or because it's it's unique big band music. It isn't. You're not going to get. You know, it's not Count Basie 2.0 or whatever. You've got like a, a particular approach. But who, who was it that kind of gave you ideas as to what you could throw into the pot? Well, I mean, I stole a lot of ideas. Um, it's just I think that maybe the influences are eclectic, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, like um, on that record, I remember when I got the idea to use the recorder ensemble, which I think was really exciting. Um, and that just, I stole from a Ligeti violin concerto. He, he had the whole woodwind section play recorders and ocarinas. And I was like, wow, this is super hip to, to hear like, uh, to hear these professional musicians like struggling to play a, (laughs) like a kindergarten instrument. Um, Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and then a lot of like the sort of like, um, yeah, so I guess it's hard to pick like a specific influence, but in general, I would say like 20th century classical music, like multiple tempos at one time, um, uh, the, the approach to tonality, I think is indebted a lot to, Thomas Addis, this British composer who um, has a great knack for um, using tonality but abstracting it in a way so it you're when things repeat they feel familiar but they're not exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And so I guess like a general distaste for exact repetition mm-hmm. um, is an influence. And um, sure. And like. Um, yeah, there's just a lot, um, in the world of big band music, um, like Darcy, James argue, mm-hmm. uh, was a big influence. Um, and yeah. And metal music, like I really, the, I think the approach to odd time signatures 
in my music is more closely aligned with metal than it is with jazz. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Sure. When, when I say that, I'd mean like that, like in metal, you know, the, the riffs that are in like in, in like sort of complex, like math metal or whatever, mm-hmm. the riffs are additive, you know, it's like these groups of units of like, like in the music of Meshuga, like it's always in four, four, but they're like building with little units of two or three. Um, sorry, my headphones are talking to me. And, um, and, uh, whereas in jazz, I think that odd time signatures are more approached as like a, um, a, like a, um, what would be the word? Like a, like a something you would fill like a container and you want to have the flexibility to approach it from any angle. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's definitely not like that in my music. Sure. I think it's not like there's constantly a non time signature going along and people are playing around with the rhythms inside of it. It's more like there's a very prescribed written out, um, riff or something Mm -hmm. that that everybody plays the same every time, you know? Sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, And then with the newer music, I've been trying to um, incorporate more in, of more influences that I've always had, but which I've never felt um, the confidence to utilize. Like I love Anthony Braxton's large ensemble music, mm-hmm. but but I think that the I didn't have the maturity until recently to be willing to take the kind of risks that Braxton took throughout his career, you know? Sure. Yeah. So Before like, he sure on did. The, yeah. Yeah. So like on the newer music, I left sections where like, there's like in the first track on block the savage, there's like crazy moments where like I let, I gave people music and told them to play it at their own pace and not to listen to anyone around them. Or like there's times where like the drums are playing and I instructed the drummer to, constantly change the tempo and don't the minute people latch on to you to change it. Um, just like to, to uh, um, just taking more chances and letting there be more danger in the music. Sure. Um, and being less controlling and like suffocating, you know? Yeah. Um, that, that's a hard balance to reach when you're writing the, the music. Cause it's easy to say, you know, I'm in charge. What what am I writing here? How am I going to, you know, when I listen to this on finale, what what's going to be the thing that comes, you know, or whatever, or Sibelius yeah, or whatever. Yeah, but yeah. then to say like, no, no, this is a living, breathing thing. And I'm going to give as much control as I can to the musicians whom I trust to do their, to, to bring their own spirit and their own energy and their own creativity to the, to the project. And that's what's right. going to make it good. That's what's going to make it fun to play and different all the time. Yeah, exactly. Mm. <clears throat> Pretty good. So, yeah, I, those. I mean, I, I guess I didn't answer that question very well. I'm not. No, sh- I think that's. I think the answer is really is the is th- that it's coming from everywhere. That they're just little bits and pieces. That, but you, it sounds like you've just got an open mind where you're going to say it doesn't matter where it's coming from. We're just going to use such and such a thing or experiment with these different things that you're hearing, and that could yeah. be from. You know, I think that I often think that we live in this time where we have so much access to so much music, and we've got now for the first time ever you know, a hundred years of recorded music, hundred plus years of recorded music. Whereas before that, unless, unless your sister knows how to play the piano, you might not know, you might not hear any music, you know, for your whatever. And, uh, but now we have the opportunity to just put these different things together. It isn't like, 
you know, okay, well, I've never heard of that. Like, I can I can in one night go and check out what what they're playing in Serbia and Ethiopia and what they're you know and whoever I can listen to Primus and Duke Ellington and whatever in the same night and take pieces from all of that and incorporate it into whatever it is. As long as you're thinking in terms of what you're trying to create and not in terms of putting yourself into a box or branding yourself in a particular way or whatever it happens to be. Right. Now, how how did you put this out? You put it out, it's out on Bandcamp and Spotify. Is it on a label? It's, no, I started my own label for this. Okay. So I, I'm going to, uh, it's a label just intended for my own releases. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to do all of my projects like this from now on. And I, the reason being is that um, I had a great experience working with Nick Finzer and Outside In Music. Mm-hmm. They've been doing some great my, stuff, man. They've been putting out so much great music. Yeah, he's. I really look up to to Nick, even though I think he might be younger than me. Or, but I mean, he <laughs> just. Okay. I love. I love his hustle and his um, drive to do better every day, and and he works so hard. Um, and I worked with a. Uh, Matt Merowitz, uh, from fully altered media as a publicist on my last two records. Mm -hmm. So that team was awesome. I think we did great work together and got some cool results. Sure. And then for this record and for, I think for the future, I'm more interested now in learning more about the, the cogs of the business and stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm just wanting to approach every aspect of my life as like, what can I learn from this so now i'm like i'm like doing everything myself like i'm doing all the art myself doing the publicity myself and um and and just sort of approaching it like an experiment because um i you know because i just done it the other way already and um and i don't want to keep doing the same thing sure i guess the minute it starts the minute something starts to feel like a pattern i get a little um distrustful of it you know sure. i'm like i want i want everything to feel creative and fun and fresh and stuff so no doubt yeah yeah well pretty good seems like you're yeah. on the right path man it seems like you're on the right <laughs> path to keeping everything fresh thanks dude yeah and, so uh, i mean um i don't know how have you released your own music or do you work got, with a label? my album's coming out on friday i've got a i've got a non-net based on the instrumentation from the birth of the cool but I've been writing all new music for that. Yeah. So, so Dope, it's uh, dude. That's Friday. Awesome. Yeah. What's that called? Well, I call it my Revenge of the Cool Nonette. The, the record nice. is called Revenge, it's going to be called Revenge of the Cool. But nice. there's, there's a lot of stuff that I've written that goes, that goes pretty far beyond that aesthetic. But, but some of this stuff, I was like, I put the stuff on there that was in some respects influenced, although maybe vaguely by, you know, the old Gil Evans stuff or whatever. Sure. Yeah. So you're putting that out yourself? Actually, Sunnyside Records is putting it out. Oh, cool. This is one of these that I, I was happy to try to get um, some people to help because there's a world that I know, which is writing music and playing trumpet and mm-hmm. r- and directing a band and talking to an audience. This stuff is completely within my wheelhouse. But the, the whole part of it that is trying to get the music to people who are going to listen to it or or publicize it in one way or another. This is a world that I don't think any of us really wants to be involved in if we can help it. We we want to be in the <laughs> position where we can just be creative and not worry about it. But we no longer live in a world where Columbia Records or Prestige or or you know Impulse is going to come out of the woodworks and say, "No, no, you just we're going to pay you to record the album and then we'll take care of the rest of it." And I don't even know if we'd want to live in that world anymore. 
but it right, is, it's certainly right. hel- it's been very helpful to have Francois and the people at Sunnyside on the on the side of the business side of it because that's a world that I'm interested in, but it's a lot to navigate. Right, and I think it's great to um, to to work with other people too because um, you know it's it's learning about what like there's just so many aspects to like publicity management all these kind of things that you just can't know unless you observe it exactly yeah exactly um so um so you're gonna learn a lot and that's why like a lot of younger musicians will ask like do you recommend spending money on a publicist do you recommend um shopping your records around to labels and the answer to everything is i think is yes like i think you just have to approach your career like um, an experiment. You're never going to learn unless you try. And some things will work for you and some things won't. Mm-hmm. And each new experience, you'll just sort of like add to your um, bag of, of uh, knowledge and slowly hone your what works for you. you exactly. Know? So there's, yeah. no, there's no like prescribed right way to do things. Yeah. I remember with the big heart machine record, I really was like constantly texting older musicians or asking them if I could get buy them coffee to like sit down and ask their advice. And I thought about it so, so hard and, um, and realized like, you just got to do something, do whatever, take yeah. whatever path is, is in front of you and then seal slowly hone it, you know? Yeah. And it speaks um, to what you're talking about, about the, um, about perfectionism because you have to be willing to to fail you have to be open to failure like we're gonna try this out and just do something and and do the best you can and be informed but who knows we don't know what you know you don't know what's how it's gonna pan out and you don't even know how you should judge whether or not something is a failure or a success right sure yeah so like a lot of the times you might feel that if you aren't getting a lot of plays on youtube or if you aren't getting a lot of listens on spotify or if you aren't whatever um that that feels like a failure but um that's just another situation i think where you have to re- and i fall prey to that constantly you know when you have a big release coming out and you want people to you want congratulations you want people to be listening and um and but again you just have to reorient yourself and realize like that that might be completely apart from what the whole experience is actually about. Right. Like, it might feel like a failure that nobody's listening to your music now, but it's out there for the world and you only need, you only need like one person to hear it and fall in love with it and want to hire you for something sure. to, you know, like it's, um, and that's just one of many examples, you know? Sure. So, yeah. 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 I think it's really probably healthier, at least for me, to not worry too much about those things. Like once the album's out, you have to be a good parent to it. You know, you have to you have <laughs> sure, to usher yeah. it. Try to give it as many chances of success as you can. Usher it into the world. Sometimes you have to be a, one of those annoying parents who like uh, bothers people on the internet over and over again. Um, you know, emailing um, over and over again or whatever, but, um, until you get a no or a yes, you know? Sure. But, um, once it's out, it's also just like, it. you did it. It's, 
it's a success because you did something and you could have done nothing. Right. So. Exactly. Yep. And it's the stepping stone to whatever happens to be the next thing. Yeah, exactly. All so. about the process. No doubt. Yeah. Well, great. Well, thanks, Brian. Thanks for doing this, man. I think we've covered a lot of ground here for sure. Yeah. Not, you have a lot of, <laughs> you have a lot of material to, to sift through. I, lo- I I had a blast talking to you, man. It's good to, good to see you. Yeah, great. You too. Well, hopefully we'll, I, uh, I'd love to hear about what, what you're doing these days too. You know, it's always weird when you're, um, when this conversation is one-sided in a way about, (laughs) yeah, 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 yeah. I know know what you're saying. Yeah. But I wanted to try to try to highlight, you know, you just put out the album and uh, I've been talking, I've been talking to a lot of people, man. And, and, uh, you know, a lot of them are older folks who've been in the, in the thing for a long time. And, uh, it's great to get to talk to somebody who's doing it, you know, who's in the middle of it and trying to work it out. Definitely who's new at it, for sure, you know? <laughs> but in the I, process, I should, man, it's critical, you know? I should say that disclaimer every time I speak publicly is just <laughs> FYI, I, re- I reserve the right to be completely wrong about all of this because I'm just figuring it out. For sure. You know, but that's uh, how you operate. You got to do it, you know? Exactly. Yeah. But I feel like the older folks, they're just trying to figure it out too, man. The, the world is changing constantly. You never know. I think, I think it might be a really hard time right now to be an older person because like, I mean, as difficult as technology seems to you and I, I'm sure it's really overwhelming. Um, if you've never like you, you know, used an interface or, Oh, sure. Um, you know what I mean? Like, um, but what's cool is I think like, uh, like the older musicians have been coming out of the woodwork to like let people know like that they're still the shit like they're still the masters like i love like what tony cadlick's been putting on on facebook um uh these great you know like um multiple screen videos of him overdubbing himself Uh it's like oh yeah that guy is like still the master sure (laughs) sure he he might not have the best editing chops or whatever but but yeah the, the 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 musicianship is just like bar none you know oh, yeah. i i do i do somewhat worry that we our generation and the younger generations put too much um uh you know like value on the presentation of things like the the sure perceived coolness of it and the actual content might be secondary to that 100 percent um and and so but that's like a whole nother hour of talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Well, great, man. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate you of course, uh, dude. coming on. And uh, hopefully, I'll tell you what, we'll, uh, once we're out of here, we'll, we'll get a beer sometime. I'll tell you about I would love to. tell you how the non-net to. record came out. I'll tell you how it, <laughs> how it worked. I can't wait to listen to it, man. Um, congrats Thanks. on that. That's, that's a big accomplishment. Yeah, I appreciate it. That's well, the first in a stepping stone. Of course, yeah, man. I gotta of do course. something else. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Hooey! Well, that was fun, wasn't it, gang? I knew you'd have some fun. Uh, we sure did. Man, there's so much more we could have gotten into there. I'm, I'm sorry we had to call it quits on that, uh, but we'll uh, hopefully we'll get Brian back on the program someday, and we can get into some of the some of the depths of the music and uh, keep on going. Or even better yet, maybe we'll all find each other, you and me, and and all the musicians around the same place at the same time going to check out a show or uh just appearing in the same place to drink beer wouldn't that be nice someday someday it will all return but for now thanks once again for joining me for another 
mind-expanding and anxiety-reducing episode of Jazztopia. Uh, if you'd like to keep up with the show and uh, find the new episodes as they come out, you can follow the SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash jazztopiapodcast. Uh, you can also follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Music or on Instagram at at Bob Spellman. And I'll be sure to keep you up to date with what's going on. We're going to keep trying to put these on uh, as a new platform so that you can check them out in whatever medium you prefer. Now keep an eye out for that. We'll be having that up pretty soon. And once again, this Friday, this week, May 22nd, my new album, Revenge of the Cool, is out on Sunnyside Records. So if you, if you want to check out what I've been up to, go find that album, and I uh, hope you enjoy it. All right, gang. Well, thanks for sticking around for another week, and uh, we'll see you next time. Everybody stay safe. Have a nice time. Listen to some good music. See ya.